This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. I'm Tony Lepstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds, Higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with song. Higher and higher, filling it with song. Filling it with song. They sound quite mad, don't they? In the beginning, the end. It's a story, but that's why I'm here, to tell you stories. So where to start? When you're in the middle of a story, it isn't a story at all, but only a confusion, a dark roaring, a blindness, a wreckage of shattered glass and splintered wood, like a house in a whirlwind or, or else a boat crushed by the icebergs or swept over the rapids and all aboard are powerless to stop it. It's only afterwards that it becomes anything like a story at all when you're telling it to yourself or to someone else. My guest is Mike Alvarez. He's a postdoctoral diversity and innovation scholar in the Department of Communication at the University of New Hampshire. He received his PhD from the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, where he taught courses in film and media studies, television production, human communication and technology, and end-of-life communication. And he's the author of this new book that we're going to be talking about, The Paradox of Suicide and Creativity, Authentications of Human Existence. So in our email correspondence, I told you that I felt pretty traumatized by the first two cases that you wrote about in the book. And yeah, it, it was very disturbing for me. I'm very sensitive, and I avoid horror movies like The Plague for that reason. So it made me wonder what it was like for you studying all of this for so long and why you chose such a difficult subject and also what you're hoping to accomplish with this. Thanks so much for um, taking the time to talk to me about this book and for that really great question. So as you said, I have been working on this project for 13 years, though not continuously, because uh, this project started as my undergraduate senior thesis at Rutgers, and then it ended up becoming the subject of my master's thesis in individualized studies at Goddard College. And then I took quite a break from it, not completely, but I took a break from it to pursue an MFA in creative writing and then a PhD in communication. 
And I put the finishing touches on this book during my final year as a PhD student. So this book has been many years coming. And one of the reasons why I chose this topic specifically is because of my own personal experiences. I I myself am a, I identify as a creative individual. I am a creative writer. And I am also someone who struggled with uh, mental health and suicide. I suffered from debilitating anxiety, depression, and um, persecutory delusions throughout my undergraduate years at Rutgers, which culminated in a suicide attempt and a stay in a mental hospital. And it was after my discharge from the hospital that I actually began to consider the relationship between suicide and creativity and began to investigate that link. And so that's really the major impetus for me pursuing this project. And as you say, it is a very dark topic, especially when one ventures very closely to the lives of the individuals he studies like I do. Um, Often when suicide is studied, it's often done so at a distance between the observer and the observed, so to speak, often achieved through diagnostic labeling or quantification, but I wanted to approach this project in a very um, intimate way by delving into the lives of the individuals I studied, the creative works they have produced, and situating the life within the work and the work within the life, and also the larger social, cultural, historical, and relational context that I inhabit. And as you say, it comes with many horrors. So for instance, the two chapters that you have mentioned were about Iris Chang and Kevin Carter. Iris Chang is the international best-selling author of The Rape of Nanking, a nonfiction work that chronicled the gruesome atrocities of Japanese soldiers in the Pacific theater during World War II, particularly in China's former capital, Nanking. And then Kevin Carter photographed the atrocities in apartheid South Africa. Um, in all their gruesome reality. So for me, it, it was, I mean, the, in some ways, like doing this kind of work runs the risk of vicarious traumatization, which is to be traumatized, not directly, but by virtue of the stories and images that one encounters. So it is difficult to pursue this project and to go about it in the way that I did. But I think personally speaking, I could see no other way for me to do it other than through immersion. So I'm curious if you have gained some perspective on your own issues through this research. I think I definitely did gain a lot of um, insights into the things that had befallen my early younger years. And uh, there's where do I begin? Well, first of all, I, I also realized that one of the reasons why I gravitated towards the subjects that I ended up studying and whose lives I ended up documenting is a sense of resonance between my life and their life. So for instance, uh, what drew me to Iris Chang is that she is someone who, like me, descended from an immigrant family. I I'm, I'm myself an immigrant and wrestled with the same challenges that she and her family did. And so I find many points of commonalities, like Kurt Cobain. I am the product of a broken home and broken childhood. And like Theresa Duncan and Jeremy Blake, who I talk about later in the book, I suffered from intense delusions and 
persecutory beliefs that forces larger than myself were conspiring against me. And in finding these points of resonance between myself and these individuals that I studied, in some ways, it's a form of, I wouldn't say reliving, but I, I think, or it is a reliving, but relivings often accompany new forms of understanding. So as I, for instance, see the circumstances, the childhood circumstances and situation of childhood trauma that Kurt Cobain, you know, experienced, I'm just giving an example here, I am basically able to come at a different kind of understanding about my own childhood difficulties. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a difficult question to answer because uh, I feel as if every person that I study in this book, I'm learning about them, but in some ways they're also teaching me about myself. And yeah, so I, I think there, there's much to be dissected there for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember while I was reading it and feeling, you know, having that experience of vicarious trauma, really having a kind of a knee-jerk resistance response, trying to protect myself from what felt like could be an invasive, infective effect from the horrors that I was reading about. And it really scared me. And it, it forced me to go inside and explore the feelings that were coming up in me and the fear and my responses and reactions to it. And it made me think, made me realize that that I am really in a very comfortable, privileged place and that there are so many people all over the world that are much less fortunate and have experiences like, like the people that you document in the book that are much more dramatic and heartbreaking and in some cases even horrific and I could identify with most of the elements that you document. The one thing that, that I've never really suffered from particularly was illusions of persecution, although we all experience that to some degree when we think that somebody is doing something in a way that's out to hurt us. So all of these dynamics that you write about and document in this book are things that I think we all experience to some degree. And I'm glad you said that because when I set out to write, to work on this project and produce this book, as I'd mentioned earlier, I didn't want to commit what they call psychobiography by pathography, which is to slap a diagnostic label on these individuals and then basically look for confirmations of the presumed illness in their life and their artwork or their creative productions. I didn't want to go that route because I feel as if I wanted to emphasize what is so human about these individuals, not what is aberrant necessarily, but what is human because even experiences that we consider abnormal or pathological are really just shades away from the things we experience as human beings. And for instance, like, as you said, the, the persecutory delusions that Iris Chang and as well as Jeremy Blake and Theresa Duncan experience, although they might be foreign to many people who do not go through such horrific feelings, they are really just orders of magnitude above the anxieties that we at our most, you know, we all find ourselves in 
conditions that produce stress and fear and anxiety, specifically anxiety of the unknown, especially given the situation we're living in and living through now. And I, I feel as if these individuals, it would be a disservice to just say they are, you know, that person is schizophrenic or suffers from psychotic disorder because really like circumstances can very well put us in those individual shoes. Mm -hmm. And another thing about this book that I find interesting is that you haven't made this into a kind of a self-help book. You're not trying to solve any problem or, or present solutions. It seems like what you're doing is you're just setting out to help us understand these dynamics and the range and variations of these dynamics. And one of the things that, that I've been working with in my life, and I think we all do, you know, because I think many people experience, you know, pretty much everybody experiences trauma. And it's really the way we respond and react to that trauma and how well we're able to contain it in our lives. And then there's the creative element of how we tell the stories of our trauma and our lives in the context of trauma and all the other experiences we've had. And one of the aspects of creativity is, is that aspect of creating narratives and creating meaning about things. And I think perhaps one of the main differences between whether we move toward healing or resilience, building resilience, or whether we move towards self-destruction is in our ability to create new narratives or retell those old stories in a new light, so to speak. Yeah, and I very much agree. And I touch upon it at certain points too about how, I mean, as I mentioned, creativity can be really restorative, but it can also be destructive as we've witnessed in the lives of many of these individuals. And that difference between you know, finding meaning or recreating meaning through new narratives and retelling because there's a big difference between narratives that retell and narratives that relive. And narratives that relive traumas in a way that feels like wheel spinning, like a grim repetition of traumatic episodes and themes that come to no resolution, reliving can be very destructive, but retelling is somewhat different. It's taking the trauma that has been experienced, whether this is a personal and individually felt trauma or a collective trauma, and retelling looks at these events but finds meaning, meaning that impels one towards the future rather than traps one in the past. Because what trauma does is, in some ways, it freeze frames the past into an eternal present. And a retelling breaks this framing so that one is able to not escape, but come to a new understanding of the past so that one is able to move forward towards future horizons and possibly better futures. So let's get into the connection between creativity and suicide and the paradox of creativity and suicide and perhaps the crisis that many creative people encounter in that tension that can occur depending on the circumstances of their life and what they're working with. 
Sure. So I, I think when I set out on this project, however many years ago, one of the things that fascinated me is this paradox. I, I mean, I, I think of it as a paradox because if creativity is the ultimate celebration of our humanity, if it's, you know, creativity is the lifeblood that animates, you know, persons, civilizations, and yet suicide is the ultimate cessation. It is the spilling of that lifeblood. And, and yet these two forces of creativity and suicide, destruction, perpetuation, and termination, it was fascinating to me that such forces that seem to be contradictory can coalesce in individuals who are exceptionally creative but ultimately succumb to the call of self-destruction. So that's what I mean by a paradox. But even each of these, suicide and creativity, each of these are paradoxical in and of themselves. So for instance, creativity is paradoxical in that it can facilitate healing and recovery, but it can also you know, be an agent of re-traumatization. And then there is suicide. In some ways, suicide is, you know, suicide is the ultimate form of negation or compliance. But in certain contexts, suicide can also be the declaration of agency. It's like the final act of agency a person can exercise in the face of, you know, negation and invalidation. So it's paradoxical in terms of when looked at separately, but it's also paradoxical when looked at in tandem and together. But of course, as you've mentioned, and as I describe throughout and illustrate throughout the book, the path from creativity to self-destruction is, there are, even though there are recurring threads in these individual lives, and I'll get through that thread shortly, the path is not so straightforward, and it's shaped as much by the context, the intersubjective context in which the individual, you know, lives and thrives or not. So really, what, what the key threads, that, you know, creativity, in these individual lives at least, creativity is often a solution to some nuclear crisis or trauma, if you will, in these individual lives. But when forces that block that creative pathway, whether that force can be coming from within or from without, outside of the person's volition, forces often get in the way of a person's creativity. And when that happens, other creative pathways may emerge. But if those two are choked or blocked off, then suicide may surface as a viable pathway for resolving those original intersubjective catastrophes in the first place. But of course, that's a very general statement that plays out very differently in different individuals' lives, as I've shown in these case studies. Since you brought up agency, I would love for you to talk about the ways that suicide can be a form of agency, especially considering the often state of despair and hopelessness that the individual is most likely experiencing at the time. Sure. So I think one example comes to mind, and perhaps we can use that as a jumping point to address agency more broadly in suicidal individuals. When you ask me that, I think about Robin Williams, who I wrote about. I mean, Robin Williams is someone for whom the body is his, the vehicle of his ex creative expression. You know, he's very skilled in the arts of uh, mimicry, gesticulation, and he really depended on his body to carry his message in, in whatever role he played. And 
and as I, I know in, in the book, and as has been documented, uh, you know, in many sources that Robin Williams suffered from neurodegenerative diseases. Uh, it was thought that he had Parkinson's disease, and it also turned out that he actually also had Lewy body dementia. I mean, both Parkinson's disease and Lewy body dementia, or LBD, are on the same continuum of um, diseases, uh, but both involve you know, loss of control over one's movement and also even control over one's facial expressions. And so suddenly when, when you find yourself inhabiting a body that's suddenly uncooperative, that that seems to go against your desires, that can be very, very devastating, especially for someone like Robin Williams, who relies on his body in its entirety for his creativity and craft and creativity for him is also it's not just a source of livelihood you know it was in some ways it was an antidote to an enduring loneliness that he felt throughout his childhood and adult life and when suddenly robbed of that vehicle for mitigating that loneliness it i mean there's no other way to describe it than obliterating so in robin williams case you know he was faced with imminent deterioration of the body and everything that comes with it and just to terminate his life is in some ways one can read his suicide as as agency in that it's one final act of asserting some form of control over the trajectory of his disease and illness progression in his life yeah i particularly related to his case in many ways um particularly in in the way of of thinking of suicide in actual practical terms and also choosing to die on one's own terms. Because as I get older and I think about the ways that the body can deteriorate, one may come to the point where we may question whether it's worth living a life that lacks a quality of experience that's worth living. And in our culture, we make a very, very heavy moral judgment against suicide. And yet, I think that in some cases, or probably in, in all cases, at least to some degree, suicide at some point becomes perhaps the only logical way to deal with a certain impasse. Or as you said, when other avenues are blocked off, that may become the only one left. Particularly, you know, when, when we're in deep states of depression and despair and experiencing trauma and reliving trauma, as you say, it tends to shut down our perspective or, or shrink it, narrow it down very dramatically to the point where all we see is our pain and our suffering. And we forget all the other experiences that we've had in our lives. And we forget the possibility of anything else but pain and suffering. So at that point, self-destruction and ending our life seems very, very logical. But what I was talking about really is, to me, seems like a very logical way of relating to one's own death when the quality of one's life is no longer worth you know, pursuing. And I've had various conversations with people over the years about this, and I find that there are a lot of people who actually agree with that. So that leads me to conclude that it's not such an outlandish idea. 
Yeah, I don't think so either. And I think in the case of, you know, Robin Williams and also other people who may find themselves in those shoes, it's a question of, um, you know, sometimes we tend to lament people whose lives are cut too short. That could be very young people who seem to have bright futures or promising avenues ahead of them. But then there's also the question of having lived too long. And I think it's, I mean, it's a very difficult conversation to have because our tendency, at least in Western and American contexts, is to prolong life to, you know, as much as we can via, I, I could perhaps the word this year is like technocratic means. But as we've also discuss it. Sometimes it's not so outlandish to think that life can sometimes be drawn out longer. And I think the key here is to look at things from the perspective of the person who is in that situation before making any moral judgments or valuations one way or another. And in some ways, that is what I endeavor to do in the case of Robin Williams, but also in the other individuals profiled in my book is to, to suspend our own judgments and suspend our own assumptions and say, okay, from the perspective of this person, what does it feel like to f find oneself at the point where the quality of one's life has been degraded to the point that living might no longer be a feasible option, and then work from there? Yeah, and leave that avenue open. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And our culture is so full of stories, and we love to tell stories where the protagonist triumphs over adversity in affirming and hopeful and inspiring ways. But these stories that you tell in this book do not end in triumph, and everyone ends up dying in the end. And we all have our triumphs and our failures. So... I think about this culture that we live in, you know, this kind of Hollywood culture that also breeds all these self-help books, you know, easy, one-size-fits-all solutions to life and all its challenges, and how we don't like these kind of stories that don't end in triumph. You know, it makes me think about what, what does that say about us and about this culture and what can we learn from these kind of stories that you document in this book of yours? And what can we learn from opening ourselves up to this side of life? Yeah, thank you for that. And I wanted to kind of address what you just asked, but also circle back to an earlier point you made about this book not being a self-help book, at least not on the surface, because I, I actually did think about when I was writing this book, I thought about writing a chapter on, you know, what insights we can, how we can use the insights that are in this book, you know, in therapeutic ways. You know, in some ways, I allude to those throughout, but... Well, first of all, I feel as if maybe I'm not in the best, you know, I studied psychology, but I myself am not a clinical psychologist. And I felt it was not really in my place to make these kinds of, you know, recommendations, these clinical recommendations. I could suggest them, but it was not really my place to make, you know, pronouncements as to what practice ought to be. But I think as dark as this book that I have written happens to be, I think there are lessons to be learned there in terms of how we can help suicidal individuals because 
personally, you know, I, I feel that we must do everything that we can to help people who are on the threshold of life and death, who are on that precipice of um, self-destruction. But at the same time, like you said, we live in a culture that just wants narratives of triumph, but triumphs don't always happen. And I f- and we have to ask ourselves, well, why do triumphs sometimes fail to occur? And I think in some ways, this is what this book is. It's like we have adversity, but adversity is not always overcome. And why is that? So for instance, one dominant narrative that I've been wrestling with in my work is the idea that you know, the idea of recovery, that once you've recovered or overcome something, then that's in the past. But, you know, based on my ethnographic work with, you know, suicidal individuals that I've conducted, once suicide has been considered, that door always remains open. Even among many suicidal individuals who have, you know, who have made huge strides in their recovery and their wrestling of the trauma in their lives it doesn't mean that they no longer that just because they have recovered they cease to think about suicide for many of these individuals they still think about suicide it's just that they would rather not act on those thoughts anymore but so again so they, you know something like that throws a wrench in our optimistic narratives about recovery that once you've recovered from something then it's a foregone conclusion that you will never look back but that's not always the case but i think even these stories that i document they all end in tragedy they all end with the death of the individual but it does raise questions about what we can do to avert that for example one of the recurring threads in this book is how impeding creativity can lead to self-destruction a question that you can then ask is, well, how can we facilitate creativity, especially in circumstances where, you know, the avenues to creative self-expression seem to be stifled or blocked off? And so for every tragic conclusion that I offer in this story, one can come up with a kind of question that reframes, well, how can that have been averted? Or what can we do in the future, given these circumstances, to perhaps create another avenue to creative life and creative self-fulfillment. So yes, we are so used to stories of overcoming and stories of triumph that we have developed an aversion to stories that do not end in triumph. But stories, however tragic or devastating as they are, do have, if we look at them closely enough and, and just deeply listen to the messages that they convey, they can give us ideas and insights onto how we can still, I am very reluctant to use the word triumph because I feel as if triumph, it's not set in stone, it's provisional. We can never be too complacent. Just because we have triumph once, it doesn't mean that we have triumph once and for all. And I've written this book also to shake people out of their complacency, that we must always be vigilant and not be too complacent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that made me reflect on how, you know, even in our more normal day-to-day lives, as we overcome various challenges, new ones always arise. You know, life will always deliver us new challenges. And these kind of Hollywood fairy tale-like stories of triumph or victory or success, I think they can be nice vacations for us from the challenges of life, but I think they can also delude us 
and also kind of brainwash us into thinking that if we do experience difficulty and are affected by it, that there's something wrong with us. And I think that's, that's a really dangerous thing, too. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, and there is a place for these Hollywood fairy tales of triumphs because they offer many gratifications and uses for viewers or consumers, escapism being one of them, but also identification with characters, especially, you know, characters who are inhabit the fringes of society. But as you say, these Hollywood or, you know, either these conventional narratives can send a message that this is how we ought to live our life. And if we were to deviate from these formulas in some ways, then there is something wrong. And as you say, that can be very dangerous too, if we take these narratives as prescriptions for how to live. Yeah. And going back to what you were saying about not making this into a self-help book, I appreciate that you don't patronize the reader. You really let us come to our own lessons about this. And I think going back to a theme that's been continually coming up for me in, in many of the conversations I've been having lately is that we learn the most from our mistakes and our failures, not from our successes, and that we have an unhealthy relationship with the notion of mistakes and failures. I agree too. And I think related to that is that we are taught not to express vulnerability because when, when we admit our failures, we open ourselves up to vulnerability. And vulnerability in an American context is frowned upon, especially if you are male, for instance, or, you know, with heteronormative masculinity and the messages that it sends to many young men, for instance, just to take an example where one's own vulnerability is not to be acknowledged. And, you know, connected to that is one ought not to acknowledge one's failure. But of course, you know, this affects people of all genders. And I think we put too much emphasis on success. And I very much agree with you that our failures offer us more teachable moments than our successes in many ways. And I'm so glad that you brought up the term vulnerability, because I think that is such an important kind of intersection that we find ourselves in our lives. And if we can allow ourselves to feel and be vulnerable where we are, I think that opens up a lot more possibilities rather than having the knee-jerk cultural response to vulnerability as shutting it down and pretending that we're not vulnerable, that we're solid, that we're strong, that we are those rugged individuals, you know, represented by this long outdated American kind of John Wayne or, you know, that type of one-dimensional masculinity. And in many ways, too, the, the whole concept of vulnerability has many implications for suicide prevention and intervention. In many cases, the reason why for many individuals it gets so bad that they find no other recourse other than to take their lives is because they've been forbidden from being vulnerable. I mean, imagine how many, for a person to end their lives, for how many just like unspoken stories resides in a person who ends their life. If a person like that has just been given permission to be vulnerable, and how many of those, you know, very 
toxic stories, for lack of a better word, or how, how much of that lethal silencing we could have averted if people are just given permission to be vulnerable from the very beginning, rather than find themselves at a point where they feel as if they cannot open up about their difficulties because doing so is perceived as weak, or to express feelings that are not necessarily valued as positive or optimistic. Yeah, like I feel like allowing ourselves to be vulnerable really has a lot of implications, not just for suicide prevention and intervention, but also things that we think of as mental health conditions. How many of those can be circumvented if we just have permission to open up without fear of judgment or reprisal? It just occurred to me that vulnerability is very much like flexibility. And if we refuse to bend under stress, we may end up breaking. Yes. I, I like that analogy, actually. That's, yeah, it very much captures this. And it's especially true in that realm of mental illness or mental stability. But of course, it, it applies in all aspects of life. Absolutely. So you also talk about the medical model of medical illness and its attitude towards suicide. And I would love for you to talk more about the problems inherent in that medical model or what you call the, the technocratic approach to all of this. Sure. So when I speak of the technocratic mindset, I, you know, I'm referring to basically how for every human problem we seek we are increasingly reliant upon scientific and technological responses to problems that are very human which of course i don't mean to imply that you know we should never resort to science and technology and medicine to address societal problems but when we rely on it to the extent that we disavow the very human circumstances that produce much despair that can be a real disservice so i i mean the near the end of the book I write a critique of the medical model, and this critique pretty much splinters in many different directions. So, you know, what is lost when we look at creative individuals as driven by pathology, you know, highly creative individuals who end their lives, when we resort to diagnosing them first rather than understanding their particular experiences and contexts, you know, there's so much there that's lost. We, for instance, fail to appreciate how these individuals are very much like us and how we are very much like them in both our triumphs, for lack of a better word, and our suffering. Also, you know, just pathologizing also makes us see their creative accomplishments as sometimes as nothing more than expressions of pathological minds when they are what they are expressing is the life impulse and the collective conscience of humanity often. So that's one aspect of the medical model that I touch upon, how medicalizing death really can also lead to a medicalization of life. Medicalizing suicide can have the inadvertent consequence of medicalizing the creative impulse. But then I understand the rationale for the medical model, at least from the perspective of those who have loved ones or themselves suffer from profound mental health conditions. But the idea is often that medicalizing can lead to a reduction in stigma, that if we frame these aberrant experiences as psychopathology, as an illness, then we can unite together in addressing this public health problem. 
but so often there's a pressure to well it's often seen as if um, medicalization is the answer to the stigma of so-called mental illness but then i look at that and think well can't that actually lead to the opposite outcome which is to increase stigma even further because when we diagnose when we pathologize when we label when we say that someone has schizophrenia or is borderline or bipolar i mean these labels have their certain uses but when we do that in our social encounters do we not also other the individual do we make them less than human so in some ways psychopathologizing can increase stigma and make it difficult for us to see that a lot of the things that ail us when looked at within the context of an individual's life are very human responses to very difficult circumstances and so you know that's where this chapter emerged from that that this critique of the medical model yeah i think that's that's such an important thing to understand that we're all doing the best we can to deal with life challenges and yet to pathologize the way we may respond to some of those challenges can be so short-sighted and downright bigoted in many ways in some ways it can be bigoted or ableist which is not to say that experiences like mania or paranoia or persecutory delusions those are very real phenomenon of course but uh, you know the cycling from depression to mania yeah that is a, a phenomenologically speaking those are very real experiences but rather than reflexively jump to labeling and diagnosing and pathologizing i think we owe it to people and ourselves really to ask what circumstances could produce such responses or produce those kinds of quote unquote illness symptoms right there can be a fine line between one's inner state and and the culture that we live in mm -hmm. yes so in the book you write the creative act itself allows us to confront the subjective experience of death and reach beyond our finitude i want you to define what you mean by finitude in that context but i'm going to continue you also say creativity is a rebellion against forces that limit our existence challenging the prevailing gods of our society namely apathy materialism conformity and greed which provide a kind of illusory comfort to the masses because they have a kind of form to it so i should also mention up front that one psychologist and thinker that has been influential to me is rollo may who wrote the courage to create and a lot of these lines are very much resonate with his thoughts but so by those i mean that you know that the idea of creativity as rebellion i mean he was you know rollo may had brought this up and he didn't address creative individuals who ended their lives in his writings but i just found it to be so very relevant the idea of creativity as rebellion but also creativity as in some ways reaching beyond one's own finitude so i'll i'll unwrap those one by one so i i'll start with rebellion because you know in some ways we are all inherently creative individuals i think the issue really is that 
our own particular pathway to creativity varies from person to person and in some individuals and there are multiple pathways to creativity in a single life but in some cases those pathways remain unexplored and in some cases they are very much explored especially the, in the case of the individuals that i profile in my book so i think that embarking on a creative pathway makes one very attuned I would even say perhaps sensitive, which is not to say sensitive people are more likely to be creative because there are many forms of creativity. But what I mean by that is like when one embarks on a creative path, one becomes suddenly more observant of in some ways what may be happening within the person, but also what may be happening beyond that person in the so larger social world that they inhabit. And that can be terrifying when you see problems where most people are complacent, you are attuned to dangers or inequalities or injustices. Where people find comfort, a creative person might see tension and discomfort and situations that need remediating. And embarking on that, addressing things that others may not see or comprehend, that can itself be a form of rebellion because it is a way of changing things that from others' perspective ought to just be left alone. So it's like creativity is rebellion because in many ways it is challenging the status quo and the status quo could very well be how one ought to look at the world. But when a person sees the world differently and seeks to make visible that which others do not see, that can be very terrifying and that can be in some ways be a very insurgent act. So that's what I mean by creativity as rebellion. Um, but related to that is the idea of creativity reaching beyond our own finitude. And I, I think that for many of these individuals that I've studied, their lives tragically ended, as all lives eventually come to an end. But the works that they produce and the normative ways of looking that they have upended those are lasting. Their life might have come to an end, but their contributions to humankind, to our collective ways of seeing, knowing, perceiving, and feeling, those are gifts that are not easily snuffed by the passage of time. And that's what I mean by creativity reaching beyond the finitude of one life. And creative individuals often venture into uncharted territories uncharted domains of human experience that the first two case studies that you've read, Iris Chang and Kevin Carter, who both dealt with the horrors of human history in the form of genocide, systematic oppression, brutality, and rampant violence. I mean, those two individuals, to give just one example, deal with things that we as a species would rather not acknowledge and so in, some, in, in that way, they are, they are dealing with phenomena that exceed the bounds of containment. But in their own work, they seek to contain that which has previously been difficult to contain. So in, they are dealing with also a, a kind of a formless. And that is terrifying. And I think that creative individuals deal with the formless, the terrifying formless, they deal with it in many ways, and they deal with different variations of the formless. And that, I mean, it, it makes one realize the finitude of one's own life as well. 
which can be a very frightening experience. And yet they do it. Mm -hmm. Because creative people often see things or willing to see things outside of the box and to think outside of the box, they often see the world they inhabit as seeming to be coming apart at the seams. Mm -hmm. And they observe the way the world is coming apart at the seams, whereas most people are easily lulled into thinking that everything's fine. Yeah, and I like that metaphor of coming apart at the seams because just daring to look just the act of looking or daring to look at new things that others dare not look at or look at things that others have looked at in a way that has not been done before that upon even closer scrutiny might appear as if they're unraveling. Mm -hmm. So maybe we could talk more about some of the key elements that lay the ground for suicidality and can push people over the edge. Sure. So there are many ways that people can be pushed over the edge. And of course, I also want to acknowledge that people's circumstances are particular to them. But there are some recurring themes and elements across suicidal individuals who choose to take their lives, especially those that I've profiled in my book. Of course, context is very important. In an American context, we tend to privilege, you know, recovery on one's own, as if somehow recovery was lodged in the individual, that you get over things on your own and through your own sheer will and fortitude. But recovery is relational, and one never really recovers on just on one's own. I mean, it's, it's a relational act. As much as creativity is a relational act, so is recovery from so-called mental illness and suicidality. And in many ways, an intersubjective or a relational surround that is conducive to recovery are those that are empathetic, facilitates vulnerability, uh, to go back to our previous point, a surround that listens without judging. Those are key. I feel as if in discourses about suicide recovery, this individualism that you mentioned, this rugged individualism still rears its head, that the recovery is contingent upon the individual, but it is not. Recovery is an intersubjective process. It's relational. And I think that is one element of suicidality that we need to focus our attention on more, the relational and communicative dimensions of suicide. So that's one. And related to that is... I've touched upon in the book is just nurturing pathways to creativity. And I mean that very broadly. I don't necessarily mean the production of art, although it can very well be that. But it could also refer to just being able to facilitate expression. Because suicide happens in the context of lethal silencing. And again, this brings us back to the larger intersubjective surround. Like, if suicide happens in the context of rampant silencing, then the facilitation of expression is really paramount. But also having empathetic listeners who will walk with us through the, to and through the unsafe corridors of our own journeys. So those are just some that I touch upon in the book. And I feel as if having an open 
conversation. There is this pernicious belief that when a person is suicidal, encouraging them to talk about their suicidality will only encourage them to go through with the act. But that's a mistaken belief that to this day has a lot of power. But the truth is that when people who are suicidal are allowed to share their struggles with suicidality, that impulse of self-destruction actually lessens and wanes. So I think that that's also another crucial component of suicidality and preventing or at least ameliorating suicidality. So that I think kind of addresses what you refer to as authentications of human experience in a way. Yes. Which is part of the title, which I don't think we had really gone into in this conversation. Not the subtitle part. I feel as if we've addressed the, the main title, which is the paradox of suicide and creativity. But the subtitle, Authentications of Human Experience, that's also a very loaded title. It's funny that you mentioned this because when this was about to go into production, I had originally had the paradox of suicide and creativity as the title, but I didn't have a subtitle. And and my publisher, my editor specifically, insisted on a subtitle. And I said, well, get back to me on that. It may take me a while because I don't want to just come up with a subtitle. If I were to come up with a subtitle, I would like it to really capture the book. Like the, the paradox of suicide and creativity as a title, I think works great because it's enigmatic and it also contains multitudes because I'm addressing the paradox of suicide and creativity together, but also alluding to the fact that each is paradoxical in its own right. So I wanted to come up with something that was equally enigmatic and contains multitudes for a subtitle. And then it occurred to me, this Authentications of Human Existence actually was the subtitle of my MA thesis when I was at Goddard College. And I thought, that would work for this book. And it also requires a lot of unraveling. So as you say, authentications of human existence, it can refer to the very need to authenticate stories that have been silenced and that have just been contained and not given permission to to be shared with others. So in some ways, like a pathway to I was going to say extrication, but that's not the right word. But one way of overcoming suicidality is for untold stories to be authenticated. So in some ways, that subtitle taps into that. But so that, that subtitle also links back to creativity, which is in the title, in that creativity is an authentication of human existence also, and as is suicide. And we've already discussed how suicide can be a form of agency, and that agency can be authenticating in that for people like Robin Williams, for instance, suicide is like this final stand against forces of negation of deciding the end to one's life in one's own terms. So yeah, in many ways, like that subtitle refers to suicide as forms of authentications and to creativity as forms of authentications, but also just the human need to tell stories and to have stories empathically received and understood as a form of authentication. Hmm. Yeah. I think one of the greatest needs that we all have is the need to just be heard, <laughs> to really be deeply heard, you know, as we really are, authentically are. 
And because of our cultural norms and the stringency and all the stigmas that, that we've created around all these things, it's really scary for most of us to show ourselves authentically in that that vulnerable way. Yeah, and it's scary to be heard because to be heard and to open ourselves up, as you say, is to be vulnerable. And to be vulnerable is perceived as being weak and to be weak is just culturally frowned upon. So it's really being heard is wrapped up in so many societal and cultural expectations and it's linked to other ways of being that are just frowned upon and judged prematurely. And it can be a really frightening thing, but it's a very necessary thing to be heard. Everyone really at the end of the day wants to be heard. It doesn't necessarily mean having people agree with everything we say, but at the very least, we all want to be acknowledged in some way and to just be validated as who we are. Mm -hmm. So you never addressed part of my very first question, which is how you know, working on this project has affected you. You know, because it, it really okay. affected me, and it might be because I'm a particularly sensitive person, but I suspect that you're also a, a sensitive person. I am. For some reason, I just like got on my like on a runaway train of thought that I that I had neglected some questions as soon as they receded into the background. But I mean, it, especially in the beginning years when I was working on this, I remember when I was writing about Sylvia Plath. I, I was an undergraduate. And to put things into perspective, when I started working on this project, it had only been months since I was released from the mental hospital. And so it still hits close to home even to this day. But when I was in the initial months, and really, I would say initial years of working on this project, like whenever I would write on it, sometimes I would just find myself. I remember one particular moment in my undergraduate years when I was at a computer lab. I was writing about Sylvia Plath. I was writing about her poems, and I just found myself crying at the computer station that I was working at. And it's very much like that when I study, when I immersed myself in these individuals' life worlds and creative worlds. It never fails to move me. And in some ways, I'm grateful that it continues to have that kind of impact on me. Because I never want to be, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't want to get so objective about this project to the point that it no longer moves me. Because I feel like a project like this should continue to affect me. And if it stopped affecting me at an emotional level, then I need to question why and what, in some ways, what am I doing wrong? That I no longer feel these narratives to be resonant. So, but but that's how it it just it affects me in many ways. Like when I was studying Iris Chang, I, I I'm someone who used to be paranoid, and I experience moments of paranoia and persecutory fears every now and then to this day. But when I studied Iris Chang, I actually felt a resurgence in my paranoia especially when I was working in the archives where she left over 300 boxes of primary source materials and going through her diaries, going through her personal artifacts had quite an effect on me. That I felt my paranoia, which I felt had been resolved, come back to the surface. And it goes back to my earlier point about how nothing is ever really 
you know, we can't be complacent because, you know, challenges and adversities, there are always new ones or old ones waiting just around the corner. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. <laughs> That's life. <laughs> Yeah, that is life. But yes, to answer your original question, this project made me feel all sorts of emotions. But it also made me feel buoyant every now and then. I'm glad to hear that because I was concerned that, that it may have been much more re-traumatizing or vicariously traumatizing as it was for me. So I'm, I'm so grateful for you, you sharing that. I'm also concerned for you because sometimes I wonder if my warning at the beginning of the book is enough because I, I, I do warn readers. <laughs> you did give some warnings, but I would suggest if, if you could go back in to make a more explicit warning, particularly about the first two chapters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. The first two chapters, actually, it's great that you brought those up and your discomfort with them, or well, not just discomfort, just your horror your experience of horror at these two chapters because I feel as if um, the order in which chapters appear is very important. And I asked myself that, like, where should Iris Chang and Kevin Carter go in the book? Do I place them near the beginning, near the end? I didn't want to put them at the end because I feel like that is not, that's not how I want readers to finish this book. But yeah, I think you but, ended, I think you ended on the perfect note with Robin Williams. He's also the one that's I, I would imagine is most known by readers. Mm -hmm. He's touched so many lives, probably m many more than, than any of the other people that you profiled. Yeah, so it's great to hear that that was the right call to put Robin Williams as the culminating chapter. But those two, I, but I guess that my mindset was that let's put them at the beginning. They, they are the most difficult, but when readers get through them, what awaits them should be more bearable. <laughs> but I mean, not completely. <laughs> you need a, a more explicit warning about that because I almost didn't make it past that. And if I didn't make it past it, I would imagine it could deter a lot of other people as well. Yeah, yeah. If I can rewind the hands of time or, or if, for instance, a popular press version of this book were to ever come out, that could be one thing I address is to... And even perhaps even suggesting that people who are particularly sensitive about things like that might want to actually skip the first two profiles and then perhaps consider returning to them after finishing the book. Yeah, absolutely. Because as I mentioned in the book, the chapters can actually be read in any order. Right. Except that people tend to go in linear fashion. They do. <laughs> they very much do. Yes. So have we covered everything? Is there anything else of importance to you that you would like to share before we end? I think we've covered quite a lot of ground, Tonio. One thing that I really did want to share, and I've already touched upon this throughout our, our conversation, is just the need to have more open conversations about suicide as a whole because even the word suicide makes people scurry away i mean the word itself is already loaded it's a frightening word and it's a very worrisome word but i feel as we need more conversations about suicide conversations that do not 
jump straight to medicalizing and pathologizing and basically how suicide raises many questions about life and death. You know, this book on the surface, it may seem like it's about 11 creative individuals who ended their lives. But if we can suspend our impulse to medicalize, I think stories of suicide and stories of overcoming suicide, but also stories of succumbing to suicide have much to teach us about life and death in general and may even make us reevaluate the ways we live our lives and open new pathways for us to lead our lives more richly and fully. And I think that whether the reader has encountered a suicide or not, I feel as if narratives of suicide are relevant to anyone and it will do us societally much good to pay attention to these narratives and to facilitate open discussions about them. And that's really, I think at the end of the day, that's what I want to leave readers and listeners with. Mm -hmm. And we didn't touch on the topic of death itself and how allergic our culture is to death, which makes suicide exponentially even more difficult for our culture to relate to. Yeah, I mean, we are a death-denying culture. And it seems paradoxical, too, because, you know, death is everywhere in media, in entertainment, media, popular communication. Death is played in, in your typical action blockbuster or horror movies. But those are spectacular deaths that are far removed from our lives. But we are still a death-denying culture in that we don't make space in our lives for the affective and emotional dimensions of loss. Mm -hmm. The healthy integration of the way death really happens in human life or in yes. life in general. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And how it impacts us emotionally. And we need to move from a state of death denial to death avowal. And, and we're not quite there yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Because eventually we all die and we eventually have to face it. So it would be so much better if we could, when we get there, to be more open and prepared to be there. <laughs> well, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I enjoyed this a lot more than I expected to. <laughs> I, I did too. It, this was really enjoyable. And I mean, I know it's difficult too. Yes, I want to thank you so much for joining me and talking about all these difficult issues and giving us such a perspective on this that I think we can all benefit from. And thanks again for having me, and I'm glad that I could share some of these insights with you and your listeners. Yes, me too. Until next time. Right. Until next time. Take care, Tonya. And that was Mike Alvarez. He's a postdoctoral diversity and innovation scholar in the Department of Communications at the University of New Hampshire. He's taught courses in film and media studies, television production, human communication and technology, and end-of-life communication. And he's the author of this book we've been talking about, The Paradox of Suicide and Creativity, Authentications of Human Existence. This is Phyllis Hyman, one of the people Mike Alvarez profiles in his book, and the song is, I Refuse to be Lonely. Mm -hmm.
like I want to Can't hold you to the promises you made You won't be here tonight Or any other night It would be a lie to say I'm not afraid But to be afraid is something that I've always been The difference is this time I'm not giving in This is Glennon Doyle Melton. Hi. 
I have been trying to weasel my way out of being on this stage for weeks. <laughs> I am terrified. Um, but about a month ago, I was up early panicking about this, and I watched an old TED Talk that Brene Brown did on vulnerability. Um, Dr. Brown is one of my heroes. She is a shame researcher, and I am a recovering bulimic, alcoholic, and drug user. So I'm sort of a shame researcher, too. <laughs> it's just that most of my work is done out in the field. <laughs> and Dr. Brown defined courage like this. She said, courage is to tell the story of who you are with your whole heart. And that got me thinking about another one of my heroes, Georgia O'Keeffe, and how she said, whether you succeed or not is irrelevant. There is no such thing. Making the unknown known is what is important. So here I am to tell you the story of who I am with my whole heart and to make some unknowns known. When I was eight years old, I started to feel exposed, and I started to feel very, very awkward. Every day, I was pushed out of my house and into school, all oily and pudgy and conspicuous. And to me, the other girls seemed so cool and together and easy. And I started to feel like a loser in a world that preferred superheroes. So I made my own capes, and I tied them tight around me. My capes were pretending an addiction. But we all have our own superhero capes, don't we? Perfectionism and overworking, snarkiness and apathy. They're all superhero capes. And our capes are what we put over our real selves so that our real tender selves don't have to be seen and can't be hurt. Our superhero capes are what keep us from having to feel much at all, because every good and bad thing is deflected off of them. And so for 18 years, my capes of addiction and pretending kept me safe and hidden. People think of us addicts as insensitive liars, but we don't start out that way. We start out as extremely sensitive, truth-tellers. We feel so much pain and so much love, and we sense that the world doesn't want us to feel that much and doesn't want to need as much comfort as we need, so we start pretending. We try to pretend like we're the people that we think we're supposed to be. We numb and we hide and we pretend, and that pretending does eventually turn into a life of lies. But to be fair, we thought we were supposed to be lying. They tell us, since we're little, that when someone asks us how we're doing, the only appropriate answer is, fine, and you? But the thing is that people are truth-tellers. We are born to make our unknown known. We will find somewhere to do it. So, in private, with the booze, or the over-shopping, or the alcohol or the food, we tell the truth. 
we say, actually, I'm not fine. Because we don't feel safe telling that truth in the real world, we make our own little world, and that's addiction. That's whatever cape you put on. And so what happens is all of us end up living in these little, teeny, controllable, predictable, dark worlds instead of all together in the big, bright, messy one. I binged and purged for the first time when I was eight, and I continued every single day for the next 18 years. <laughs> Seems normal to me, but you're surprised. <laughs> every single time that I got anxious, or worried, or angry. I thought something was wrong with me. And so I took that nervous energy to the kitchen and I stuffed it all down with food. And then I panicked and I purged. And after all of that, I was laid out on the bathroom floor and I was so exhausted and so numb that I never had to go back and deal with whatever it was that had made me uncomfortable in the first place. And that's what I wanted. I did not want to deal with the discomfort and messiness of being a human being. So when I was a senior in high school, I finally decided to tell the truth in the real world. I walked into my guidance counselor's office and I said, actually, I'm not fine. Someone help me. And I was sent to a mental hospital. And in the mental hospital, for the first time in my life, I found myself in a world that made sense to me. In high school, we had to care about geometry when our hearts were breaking because we were just bullied in the hallway or no one would sit with us at lunch. And we had to care about ancient Rome when all we really wanted to do was learn how to make and keep a real friend. We had to act tough when we felt scared and we had to act confident when we felt really confused. Acting, pretending was a matter of survival. High school is kind of like the real world sometimes. But in the mental hospital, there was no pretending. The jig was up. <laughs> we had classes about how to express how we really felt through music and art and writing. We had classes about how to be a good listener and how to be brave enough to tell our own story while being kind enough not to tell anybody else's. We held each other's hands sometimes, just because we felt like we needed to. Nobody was ever allowed to be left out. Everybody was worthy. That was the rule, just because she existed. And so, in there, we were brave enough to take off our capes. All I ever needed to know, I learned in the mental hospital. I remember this sandy-haired girl who was so beautiful, and she told the truth on her arms. And I held her hand one day while she was crying, and I saw that her arms were just sliced up like pre-cut hams. In there, people wore their scars on the outside so you knew where they stood. And they told the truth so you knew why they stood there. <sighs> so... I graduated from high school, and I went on to college, which was way crazier than the mental hospital. <laughs> In college, I added on the capes of alcoholism and drug use. The sun rose every day, and I 
started binging and purging. And then when the sun set, I drank myself stupid. The sunrise is usually people's signal to get up. But it was my signal every day to come down. To come down from the booze and the boys and the drugs, and I could not come down. That was to be avoided at all costs, so I hated the sunrise. I closed the blinds, and I'd put the pillow over my head while my spinning brain would torture me about the people who were going out into their day, into the light, to make relationships and pursue their dreams and have a day. And I had no day. I only had night. And these days, I like to think of hope as that sunrise. It comes out every single day to shine on everybody equally. It comes out to shine on the sinners and the saints and the druggies and the cheerleaders. It never withholds. It doesn't judge. And if you spend your entire life in the dark and then one day just decide to come out, it'll be there waiting for you, just waiting to warm you. You know, all those years I thought of that sunrise as searching and accusatory and judgmental. But it wasn't. It was just Hope's daily invitation to me to come back to life. And I think if you still have a day, if you're still alive, you're still invited. I actually graduated from college, which makes me both grateful to and extremely suspicious of my alma mater. And I found myself sort of in the real world and sort of not. On Mother's Day 2002, I'm not good at years, we'll just say on Mother's Day, I had spun deeper and deeper. I wasn't even Glennon anymore. I was just bulimia. I was just alcoholism. I was just a pile of capes. But on Mother's Day, one Mother's Day, I found myself on the cold bathroom floor, hungover, shaking, and holding a positive pregnancy test. And as I sat there with my back literally against a wall, shaking, and understanding washed over me. And in that moment on the bathroom floor, I understood that even in my state, even lying on the floor, that someone out there had deemed me worthy of an invitation to a very, very important event. And so, that day on the bathroom floor, I decided to show up. Just to show up. To climb out of my dark, individual, controllable world and out into the big, bright, messy one. And I didn't know how to be a sober person or how to be a mother or how to be a friend. So I just promised myself that I would show up and I would do the next right thing. Just show up, Glennon. Even if you're scared, just do the next right thing, even when you're shaking. And so I stood up. 
Now, what they don't tell you about getting sober, about peeling off your capes, is that it gets a hell of a lot worse before it gets better. Getting sober is like recovering from frostbite. It's all of those feelings that you've numbed for so long, now they're there and they're present. And at first, it just feels kind of tingly and uncomfortable, but then those feelings start to feel like daggers. The pain, the loss, the guilt, the shame, it's all piled on top of you with nowhere to run. But what I learned during that time is that sitting with the pain and the joy of being a human being while refusing to run for any exits is the only way to become a real human being. And so these days, I'm not a superhero, and I'm not a perfect human being, but I am a fully human being, and I'm so proud of that. I am fortunately and frustratingly still exactly the same person as I was when I was 20 and 16 and eight years old. I still feel scared all the time, anxious all the time, oily all the time, I still get very high and very low in life, daily. But I finally accepted the fact that sensitive is just how I was made. That I don't have to hide it, I don't have to fix it, I'm not broken. And I've actually started to wonder if maybe you're sensitive too. Maybe you feel great pain and deep joy, but you just don't feel safe talking about it in the real world. And so now, instead of trying to make myself tougher, I write and I serve people to help create a world where sensitive people don't need superhero capes, where we can all just come out into the big, bright, messy world and tell the truth and forgive each other for being human and admit together that, yes, life is really hard, but also insist that together we can do hard things. You know, maybe it's okay to say, actually, today I'm not fine. Maybe it's okay to remember that we're human beings and to stop doing long enough to think and to love and to share and to listen. This weekend was Mother's Day, which marked the 11-year anniversary of the day I decided to show up. And I spent the day on the beach with my three children and my two dogs and my one husband, <laughs> my long-suffering husband, you can only imagine. And life is beautiful, and life is brutal. Life is brutal, all the time, and every day. And only one thing has made the difference for me, and that is this. I used to numb my feelings and hide and now I, sh I feel my feelings and I share. That's the only difference in my life these days. I'm not afraid of my feelings anymore. I know they can come and they won't kill me. And they can take over for a little while if they need to. But at the end of the day, what they are is really just guides. 
They're just guides to tell me what is the next right thing for me to do. Loneliness, it leads us to connection with other people. And jealousy, it guides us to what we're supposed to do next. And pain guides us to help other people. And being overwhelmed, it helps us to ask, it guides us to ask for help. And so I've learned that if I honor my feelings as my own personal prophets, and instead of running, I just be still, that there are prizes to be won. And those prizes are peace and dignity and friendship. And so I received an email last week, and it's now taped to my computer at home. And it just said, Dear Glennon, it's braver to be Clark Kent than it is to be Superman. Carry on, warrior. <laughs> and so today, I would say to you that we don't need any more superheroes. We just need awkward, oily, honest human beings out in the bright, big, messy world. And I will see you there. That was Glennon Doyle Melton. It's a very 
And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. If you missed any of the show or would like to hear it again, you can find this and all Magical Mystery Tour shows at soundcloud.com slash WGDR. That's soundcloud.com slash WGDR. And go to WGDR.org and make a generous donation to help us achieve the dream of true community radio. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other.